Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to the ID10T podcast. Number 1,000. That's a big number. That's an M. If you're an ancient Roman... That is an M. I'd say this because we literally just left Rome. So everything's Roman right now in my world. But it is amazing if you ever get a chance to go. Um, So if you are not maybe going to go to Rome, but you feel like, hey, maybe I can go to Nashville or Salt Lake City, I'll be doing stand-up there um, at the end of May in Nashville and then the following weekend in Salt Lake City. If you go to ID10T.com, you can get tickets and info for that. I will not be doing stand-up in Rome anytime soon. Uh, io parlo italiano un po', ma il mio italiano non è, non è buono per, um, uh, stand-up. <laughs> so, eh, I think I'll just do it in English. I'm just gonna do it in English. How about that? Um, also in English is the corkboard which you can send your corkboard item to events at id10t.com. If you're in the ID10T community and you have a thing that you would like to promote, like, how about this one? Farm Animal Rescue and Rehoming Movement is an animal sanctuary in Alberta, Canada. They have dozens of farm animals who were once abused, neglected, or destined for meat farms. They recently suffered a terrible fire, and unfortunately, some of the animals lost their lives, and their barns were destroyed and damaged. That's terrible. Along with being devastated over the loss of life, Farm... Uh, which is Farm Animal Rescue and Rehoming Movement, now needs to build a new barn for the animals. If you would like to donate or find out more info, visit farmrescue.org, and that is farm with two R's um, in the middle. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck for that. Also, Carmen writes, I've been an artist since I was a child and have turned it into a small Etsy shop. My art features uh, handcrafted, decorative, and personalized wood signs, portraits, and paintings for all budgets. Commissioned pieces are also available. Listeners may even find some artwork relating to the Walking Dead characters. They may visit california-crafted.com to shop. There's something for everyone. Well done, Carmen. This episode is uh, Moby, who the first time he was on the podcast totally blew me away this was years ago and he came back again and then blew me away again because uh you know i'm so i'm always so and just sort of looking back at (laughs) the last thousand episodes i'm so honored that people are willing to just open up open up about their flaws open up about their insecurities open up about their stumbles um because it is the the sort of the I don't know, the the grout that binds humanity together. Um, and so, you know, 
coming back from struggles, overcoming flaws, overcoming insecurities, overcoming whatever it is, or whatever kind of, you know, admitting that things aren't rosy all the time and here's how you dealt with it um, is just part of the human experience. And I appreciate that people are so authentic when they come on and willing to share nuggets of wisdom that hopefully you benefit from. Um, I uh, do, I always try to take mental notes when I'm doing these and when I listen to them back, um, then uh, I'm like, oh my God, I forgot about this and I forgot about this and I forgot about this. So I hope uh, it provides not just entertainment, but also uh, some edutainment for you, some mental health edutainment. Uh, Moby is promoting his new memoir, Then It Fell Apart, which is available now. You can get it now. You can do it while you're listening to this. In your ears, you can go get it somewhere online or in a real life bookstore. Um, if you still go out in public, nah, not everyone does anymore. But if you do, then you are able to do that. Uh, or you could buy it on Amazon while you're in public. Who knows? Your options are not unlimited. I'd say they're relatively limited. There's only a couple ways you could do it, but you do have a choice how you're going to acquire this thing. Um, so that's it. This is uh, the Eddie Tenty Podcast, episode number 1000 with Moby returning to the podcast. And here it is. Initiating ID10T protocol. in you were talking about number one how you almost bought the bear skeleton which oh, are we are we yeah going? we're recording but oh, we can okay. cut anything out that you don't no, want I'm, in I'm fine. um we were talking about the bear skeleton which is delightful uh have you considered because you said you wanted to get it and put it in an apartment that you had at the time yeah i lived on mott street uh-huh. and i had this little apartment um, this was, I guess, the early 90s to the mid-90s. And I walked by that store. What's it called again? Evolution. Evolution. And they were had an early location. Where was it? It was, I think, in the East Village before they were in Soho. Mm-hmm. And they had this – every time I walked past it, I would see this giant 10-foot cave bear skeleton. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm a, I'm a vegan. Am I allowed to have a cave bear skeleton? And I was like, well, it did die – 60,000 years ago. <laughs> um, and I just thought it would be the funniest thing in the world to like, because I lived in a small apartment, for someone to come in and see a 10-foot tall cave bear skeleton. Right. And then they moved to Soho, and I still kept seeing it, and I just sort of over time forgot about it. So it made me happy to see that yes, you have his, he's being his well brother or sister. Yeah. Now, it, that is an interesting kind of ethical dilemma because it is it's like, well, it didn't die for the purpose of this it just was unearthed like it lived in nature and it had it lived yeah. its life do you would you have had to have put up a plaque or explain to your friends like no 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 this is very old this did not just happen this was yeah. sixty thousand years just, ago yeah, just like a little like caveat like no actual cave bar cave bears were harmed in the making of <laughs> that's this that's right skeleton. that's yeah. right that's right um so i have a question yeah um who i think i asked you this last time because you've talked to a lot of people yes Who's been terrible? 
<laughs> that is not what I was expecting. I don't have... I mean, I would say in the almost thousand episodes we've done, uh, no one has been straight up terrible. There was one person that I got too nervous around and it that didn't go great. Can you say who that person was? It was Harrison Ford. Oh, okay. But it wasn't his fault. <laughs> He's also... I remember seeing him on David Letterman years ago. Yes. And it was comical because apparently Harrison Ford, who's like supposedly a very nice man, yeah. is notoriously the most uncomfortable person to interview. Like if you if I'm sure this is on YouTube, it's David Letterman interviewing Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford just wouldn't respond. Yeah. He was so shy and uncomfortable. He's I think there's a bit of that, and I think there's also a bit of like I I do think it's kind of entertaining to him to mm-hmm. kind of fuck with people a little bit. And if I had been calm and been able to handle it, it would have been great. Um, but I couldn't – I was just too nervous and I couldn't – I just could not get my brain to roll mm-hmm. with it. And so I just I just collapsed and imploded inward. And um, But, you know, he really – it was really totally – it was totally me if I had been better. But, but as I've said before, I was so thankful for it because it was such a learning experience – because after that happened, and that was 2012, um, I was never afraid of anyone ever again. It was sort of like getting thrown off the horse and being like, well, now I'm not – now that, that, that's what never, happened and I'm not afraid. Never afraid of anyone? On the podcast, no. Oh, OK. Because, I mean, in life, I'm scared of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. The world is a terrifying place. But I mean like one-on-one, the, the, the concept of sitting down and talking to people that I'm fans of or nervous mm-hmm. around, like I, that I was able to – it got me over that. So I'm actually really thankful that it, that it happened. Uh, but other than that, there re- there hasn't been anyone where I was like, God damn it, can't believe that shit. We yeah. we've been extraordinarily lucky. And has anyone stood out as being surprisingly great? So there are so many people that it just it's just people that I wouldn't have exp- that I didn't know much about. There's this actor named Michael Ironside who you know he's played a bad guy in so many great sci-fi films, and uh, he just ended up being. This incredibly thoughtful, contemplative, philosophical, hmm. like well-rounded, wonderful man. Um, but and it's kind of one of my favorite things about the podcast is not just talking to people that I'm already a fan of, but talking to people that I don't know that well and being completely blown away by them because I'm constantly, I'm basically just trying. This podcast is an excuse for me to tap people for knowledge and mm-hmm. to try to learn from them. And I'm always curious. And so, yeah. So then that begs the question, if you've done a thousand of them, generally speaking, what have you learned? Um, I've learned that there are no shortcuts to success. Uh, I've learned that people who are... Even su- if your last name is Kardashian? Even if your last... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, y- yes, that's true. I will say the thing that I will say about them in particular is even if you don't like what they do, like they have figured out some way to maintain it. And that's yeah. a, that is that's hard to do. Uh, yes. In the, initially, they, you know, there were questionable things about how that all happened. I, I actually know very little about them. Yeah. I just have this vague idea that somehow O.J. Simpson's lawyer and – former Bruce Jenner are involved in the rise of the Kardashians. And I'm like, so that's either true 
or I was on mescaline years ago, and somehow I just envisioned that this, in like, I don't know if Philip K. Dick-style dystopian future where, like, we have a reality star as our president. Yeah. And O.J. Simpson's lawyer led to a woman being <laughs> launching a perfume line and being married to a famous rapper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if... The, if the if what her father did had much to do with the like with their success, I it was there was a lot of road in between those two events. But just, they had a popular reality show, and you know, and they catapulted it into a lifestyle brand. But but in general, people who are successful um, put in the work, they put in the time, they fall and get up, and they fall and get up, and they fall and get up, and it's not it's, accidental. It's funny that you say that because I'm so I'm putting out a memoir. My second memoir, because I'm a crippling narcissist. Um, <laughs> it all fell apart? Is that what it's called? Is it, is, so then it fell apart. It fell, yeah, then it fell so apart. So I'm doing a talk, like an interview talky thing that middle-aged guys do in New York. Um, and it's at the Rubin Museum. It's like a Buddhist museum, yeah. Tibetan Buddhist museum. And they wanted to know what, like if I had to give the, the talk a theme, what would it be? And I was like, how about the power of failure? Yeah. And like, because the relationship to failure is something that very rarely do people talk about. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, everybody fails, and it's how you respond to failure that sort of determines what ha like your your long term chances to have anything some semblance of success. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's the other thing that has been a, th a common thread in anyone who's achieved any degree of, ha of happiness or success or whatever. And there's really this sort of there's kind of a sto there's a stoic idea that or at least the way that I interpret it is that failure doesn't really exist in the mm -hmm. way that we think of failure because it's not like an end point it is basically a building block in your journey and what you do with it you know determines what you become yeah i mean for some people i think it it is an end point right it's almost like the people like i mean because in the course of my life I've failed countless times, <laughs> but I almost didn't have like the sense of shame that would prevent me from like retreating. Right. You know, I was like, oh, I failed. I guess I'll fail in public some more mm -hmm. and I'll humiliate myself because also I don't know what else to do. Right. You know, it's not like, like I never had a plan B. It right. wasn't like, well, if this doesn't work out, I'll go back to being a CPA. <laughs> you know, nothing wrong with CPAs, but like I... That wasn't your calling. I was a college dropout who'd studied philosophy. Like I had absolutely no other skills. So when failure happens, you're like, well, I guess I failed. Now I just have to keep working and hope that maybe somehow things work out. Right. Well, and it's, you know, the other thing that you talked about when we came, when you came in is I'm wearing a... I'm wearing an, uh, an ACDC shirt, but it's alternating current, uh, direct yeah. current shirt. With and Tesla and Edison. Yeah, with Tesla and Edison on it. And e Edison has the, well, I figured out a thousand ways to not make a light bulb. That, that idea is like, oh, you failed a thousand times. No, I learned a thousand ways to not make a light bulb. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we were talking about Tesla. And then uh, you mentioned an author who had written a book series. F. Paul Wilson. F. Paul Wilson that sort of explained that Tesla created this misanthropic character of Tesla to uh, cover something up. Well, I, yeah, because I don't want to... It's a spoiler alert. It's yeah, F. Paul spoil Wil it. F. Paul Wilson has written probably 30-some-odd books all based on this idea that there's a secret history to the world. It's almost... You know the concept of Manicheanism? No. It's light versus dark. Okay. Um, I think someone who's actually 
smart would hear me say Manichaeism. They're like, that's actually not what it had, like anything to do with Manichaeism. But the idea that there's this sort of like dialectic between light and dark. And in the F. Paul Wilson world, the light side is sort of disinterested mm-hmm. or uninterested. And the dark side loathes us. Like mm-hmm. the dark side is truly evil. The light side is just kind of eh, indifferent. Right. And in this book, without giving too much away, the most recent F. Paul Wilson book, Tesla somehow unlocks a portal to the darkness. Mm-hmm. Well, now I've just given everything away. <laughs> yeah, sorry for, I'm sorry, F. Paul Wilson, if you're listening. Like, I kind of just gave away. I can cut that out. No, no, it's 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 still worth re- all the books are worth reading. Like, well, it, the, but the reason that I brought it up is, and this all does loop back around, is even thinking about this. Because it's almost sort of romanticized in a lot of, you know, particularly in a lot of nerds. I think it's that 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 sort of tortured Tesla ideal uh, idea of, you know, he's he's so brilliant, but he's just barely holding on by a thread. I think a lot of people feel that way, you mm-hmm. know, and so I think they identify with Tesla, and they also probably identify with him as like he's a lone wolf out there making it, and here's Edison, this corporation, and he's fucking with him, and probably taking ideas and sort of. But the truth and is, who was, it? was it also Westinghouse who was an investor in Tesla? I think also sort of like betrayed him. And then there was an Italian inventor who also sort of stole some of his ideas. Not to malign Italian inventors at all, but not like Marconi. Mark, I think it was Marconi. And Marconi. I think so. Who also potentially sort of violated some of Tesla's patents. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so then Tesla died. As far as I remember, like penniless, vaguely almost homeless. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, the thing, the thing that's interesting when you think about history is, we can't really track the news that's going on today in terms of like what's real, what's biased, what's a cover up, what's it's like mm-hmm. it's it's impossible. So when you think about how do we know exactly? <laughs> we have no clue. You know, maybe all those things were true. Maybe they weren't. Maybe that was a version or a perspective of what happened. So it just, like, n- not only do I kind of think about, like, I don't know what's real anymore mm-hmm. in terms of, like, what we're being delivered. But how do we even know historically what's accurate? And you're right. And what's really disturbing about that is that people are now, or they have been for quite a long time, willing to go to war and to kill Based on hearsay. Sure. You know, like someone will say, well, Jesus said this. I was like, Jesus didn't write anything down. Like, <laughs> it was a good 80 years after he died until anyone wrote anything down. He was a very, he was a great messiah, and, very bad note taker, just yeah. did not want to take notes. And I had some friends who were arguing about, like, the Buddhist sutras. Right. Like, what did the Buddha say? And did he, I was like, historically, nothing was written down <laughs> that was attributed to the Buddha for 400 years right. until after he died. Right. I was like, so you're, really, you're ready to get in a fist fight over hearsay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember my first year of uh, my freshman year at uh, Jesuit Catholic school in our theology class, the priest, um, I wish I could remember his name, but he basically, we played a game of telephone through the whole class where he said something to the person in the mm-hmm. front, front first seat and then it was passed all the way around to the class of like, you know, 25 kids or whatever. And by the end, of course, it was a distorted, different statement. And he was like, if we couldn't agree upon what I just said in this classroom, 
you know, it's like you kind of have to take everything with a little grain of salt because, yeah. uh, like you said, a lot of oral traditions, you know, not just in Christianity, but with all history, it's like we it, the information can change to the you know through the receivers. Yeah, it makes me think of Life of Brian. Of course, you know, like <laughs> blessed are the cheesemakers, or is he talking about like dairy producers of all stripes? You know? But it's it loops kind of loops back around this idea that. You know, again, the the people who have really blown me away don't seem to take all of that really seriously. They don't necessarily try to find happiness or validation. They fight the urge to find validation outside in the external world, which is very thematic, I think, to the book that yeah. you've, you've just written. And so that, you know... Those lessons, I love hearing them over and over again. It never gets redundant to me because this life is just a process of get falling down, getting up, and reminding yourself. And it never, there's just not a goal line. And hopefully, I mean, this might seem trite, but hopefully, learning in the process. That's that's so, what you want. So this book, um, then it fell apart, is based around that idea because similar. To assume a lot of people. When I was growing up, I assumed, like I grew up very, very poor, scared, ashamed, insecure. And I thought like, okay, at some point in my life, if I have success, if I have some fame, if I have a record deal, if I can go on tour and play in front of people who might even know my music, you know, everything will work out and I'll be the happiest person in the world. And then I don't want to anthropomorphize the universe, mm-hmm. but the universe gave me everything I wanted times 10,000 mm-hmm. sort of say like, okay, here you go. <laughs> and so then I found myself like, there's sort of like this one center point in the book where I was in Barcelona and I had just won. Um, I feel like such a douchebag saying this, but I just won like my fifth or sixth MTV award. Mm-hmm. And I was on tour playing in arenas and playing headlining festivals. And I'd never been more depressed and I was at the top of this fancy hotel called the Arts Hotel, and I drank myself into a stupor because I am an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in 10 years. Oh, but nice. I'm an old-timey, bottomed-out alcoholic. Yep. So I'm in this three-bedroom penthouse suite of this hotel. My neighbors on this floor are Madonna, John Bon Jovi, and P. Diddy, mm-hmm. if that's still his name. Um, <laughs> and... I drank, I was blind drunk and I was just walking around this hotel suite sobbing, trying to find a window that would open up wide enough so I could kill myself by oh throwing my, myself. And so that's, that's what – like. but materially and on the surface, things had never been better. Like I had my own tour bus. I had an assistant whose only job was throwing parties for me mm-hmm. and I'd never – and this was all – and I think that's where the despondency came from You because know, when you spend your whole life thinking, oh – future circumstances are going to fix all of my problems. And then you you arrive with those future circumstances and your problems haven't – they're not only not fixed, they've metastasized. Yeah, and you don't know what else to – it's like, well, I don't know what else to shoot for because this was the this was supposed to be the magic bullet. Yeah. And I'm you, out. And you start panicking because you're like, oh, my God, like I don't – yeah, like you said, I don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. You know, like if this didn't work, I've spent my whole life pursuing something and I got it. And it didn't work. Then what? Well, I think we, you know, people, we need a purpose. I think through whatever sort of evolutionary trick, we need a purpose mm-hmm. to survive. Because 
we have to contribute because we survive as a community, as a species, you know. And so when you – and it happens to a lot of people like when they retire, you know, like, well, what do I do? Like, what's my purpose? People need a purpose. And if your purpose was to achieve all these things and that's what you set out to do and you did it, you have no purpose left. So you feel even emptier. It's like this didn't work and I'm even emptier. And yep. so that's how I would love to hear about how you dug out of that to figure out, hopefully, that, you know, the purpose comes from within and not outside. Well, and this might seem a little vague or tangential, but hopefully it will lead to something relevant. In 1992, I went to a vegan Chinese restaurant in New York and I ate purple eggplant Mm -hmm. and it made me sick. I have never eaten purple eggplant again, <laughs> which might seem sort of irrational. Like you have one bad experience. Maybe it doesn't make sense to spend the rest of your life staying away from it. Right. But alcohol, drugs, and the pursuit of fame and celebrity, I bottomed out thousands of times and kept going back. Mm-hmm. It was like eating purple eggplant thousands of times. And every time you eat it, it makes you sick, mm-hmm. but you still keep eating that stupid purple eggplant. Right. And so eventually – and this, I don't, you know, don't want to sound like too much of a middle-aged sober cliche, but eventually, and not surprisingly, I really bottomed out. Like that experience at the hotel in Barcelona where I was like drunk and despondent trying to kill myself, like I still had another six years to go before I finally admitted it wasn't working. Well, wait, let me just, let me pause right there because I want to hear what's going on in your head if you, if you can remember so you're looking for a window to jump out of. And, and they, they all only opened a crack. It was so disappointing. Thankfully, they <laughs> only opened a crack. Stupid hotel. So what happens? Do you drink yourself into uh, a, a, an unconscious state? Or like how do you continue on from that point? And what, what are you thinking at the time? Um, what, and I'm assuming that a lot of people who have a degree of sort of like external success – will relate to this. Like you sort of think to yourself like, okay, well, I'm despondent in this hotel suite. Um, so maybe the answer is to have a different hotel suite. Mm-hmm. You know, the cliche is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Sure. I'm like, well, this current assistant is throwing me good after show parties. But if I had a different assistant or a second assistant, they'd throw me better after show parties. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm doing $100 worth of cocaine every night, maybe the answer is to do $300 worth of cocaine every yeah, night. So double and triple down. You just keep – yeah, and then like until you've – in my case, in a lot of people's cases, you finally are presented with this overwhelming like abundant slash portfolio of evidence that you can no longer ignore where you suddenly realize like, oh – I've alienated my friends. I've alienated my family. I can't go on a single date without having panic attacks. I'm having 15 drinks a night. I'm spending $300 a day on cocaine. I sleep until 5 in the afternoon, and I wake up depressed that I'm still breathing. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, that's evidence that things are not working out. Well, you're lucky that still even at that point that you were able to to have that realization. Well, Well, I was also resentful of the people who died. Like, because people around me started dying of, like, alcohol, you know, like, Heath Ledger and DJ AM, all these people just started dying. And every time I heard about a public figure dying of alcohol or drugs, I was jealous. That it wasn't you. Yeah, I was like, come on, like, Heath Ledger, like, I was drinking and doing more drugs than he was. Like, 
Like, why did the universe mercifully take him and leave me here? Well, then what? Because I think some of this success depression also probably has something to do with, um, you know, low self-esteem. I say this as someone who has been through this, too, where you feel like, oh, I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve Mm. any of this. Like, there's a guilt to your success. Was that an element at all? Well, everything. and, And forgive me if I just realized what a potentially inappropriate analogy this might be but it's like citizen kane <laughs> okay <laughs> we have okay. a citizen kane poster downstairs we're okay not, I, not, I didn't i didn't i didn't know no the fam- wife's fine family's with it. relationship She's fine with it. To, yeah it's fine obviously happened a long time ago obviously the great granddad didn't feel that way no listen yeah. you know i mean look you know water, or, water or, under a bridge you know orson welles was just a hacky director trying to take a very nice man down who was just trying to live his life <laughs> yeah. and no one ever heard just, from him again yeah um <laughs> So, yeah, so Citizen Kane, broadly speaking, it's about the idea that, like, there's a childhood, something happens in childhood that is traumatic, and then you spend the rest of your life trying to fix it without addressing it, you know? Um, But until you address childhood trauma, until you address, you know, the sadness and the brokenness that compels you to go out into the world and to try and conquer the world, Mm -hmm. you'll never have a moment... Well, you'll have some moments, you know, 3 a.m. in a strip club, out of your mind on cocaine with your new best friend, Brandy, the stripper, Mm -hmm. you know, then you might have that moment of happiness, but it's certainly not sustainable. Well, pleasure is not happiness. That's another interesting thing. And to your point about purpose, I completely agree. And it's funny because like when I was bottoming out as an alcoholic, I would read books by the Dalai Lama, by other spiritual leaders, and they would say that like... The key to happiness is selflessness and service. Mm-hmm. And I was like, nope, nope. That, I, do, <laughs> I do not want that to be right. Like, I really profoundly hope that you're wrong. It's got to be all about me. Because I want the key to happiness to be abject selfishness. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and, and then finally, like, over the last 10 years of, you know, sobriety and some sort of, like, cliched middle-aged guy, Southern California introspection, I have realized that, like, oh, they're right. Like materialism can be fine. Materialism doesn't fix problems. No, no, no of course not. And that kind of abject selfishness, uh, if you spend a lot of time with yourself and focused on yourself, then that's what you have. And it's very lonely. You, you, can, be very, you can be very lonely. So I'm sure there's just devastating loneliness because this period where you were jealous that you were not being somehow taken from your uh, narcotic exploits, how do you finally go, wait a minute, that's, I think maybe that's not right. Like, how do you, how do you get out of that? Because I'm sure there are people listening who go, holy shit, I completely identify with that. I feel empty. Nothing makes me happy. How, how can I begin to dig out of that? I mean, I can't presumptuously speak to other people's experiences. Um, what I can say is like, there's a process and it exists in literature, like it's a narrative trope, is like everything you have is sort of either taken away from you or you realize it's not working. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is going back to like even like the Greek tragedies, although they tend to not end very well. <laughs> um, so um, and then it's that it's it sort of speaks to something in our very 
presumptuously broadly speaking, our culture and our species where the thing that we hate more than anything is evidence. Mm-hmm. You know, we all collectively and individually, we love magical thinking. You know, we love pretending that we'll never die. Right. We love pretending that you can be spiritual and selfish. We mm-hmm. love pretending that you can eat McDonald's and be healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, we love pretending everything. You know, you can smoke cigarettes and drink two six-packs of beer a day, but then when you're diagnosed with cancer, it's unfair. Right. You know, it's like whether it's karma, consequences, evidence, whatever you call it, it's it's when you're forced to accept that actions have consequences. Right. You know, and then you're like, oh, okay, I spent my whole life longing for deus a machina interventions, mm-hmm. you know, and I've spent my whole life thinking that materialism will fix me. And then you finally admit it doesn't. And you're like, okay, what next? And so to your point, or the question of like that person who's wondering what's next, it's hard to say this with, again, like sound like too much of a cliche, but it's like health, service, humility, um, community, purpose, spirituality, like really like the humble things that actually are, I don't know, attainable or achievable for almost everyone, right? which is kind of liberating in a way to say like most people, like right now, I'm sure someone who's listening, who's like struggling and miserable and jealous of people who have more success and more stuff than them. And you can say to them, like, actually, like the keys to the kingdom are within you, right? You know, like what you want, Good chance you already have, right? Like it's it's just putting your attention on that and cultivating that stuff rather than thinking, oh, the only way I'll be happy is if I have seven Grammy nominations and am dating a reality TV star and like having sex with her sister at the same time, right? You know, like, yeah. Well, I think it is this magical thinking thing. It's it's also habitual thinking, and so if someone, I think for people trying to dig out of it. The thing to realize is that it does take work. It takes a good support structure. It takes figuring out a way to believe that you're worth it and that it's possible. And it's a process. And it's not going to – you might have an epiphany, but it's not just going to change overnight. It's like, again, it's that process of like getting up, falling down, getting up, falling down, getting up, falling down. And then all at a certain point, the muscle is strengthened and you have – you can feel that you've – that you're on a different path than you would have been. And the more time that passes, you can feel the distance between the divergent paths. And that's, yep. that, that's where it, it gets where you really can feel it. And it starts to get like, you know, a lot easier, but it's just one of the reasons why I'm like, I'm just learning. I'm learning piano at my age because I just want to see a physical representation of incremental efforts and how they pay off at a certain point yeah. as a, as sort of a um, a metaphor for the rest of my life. I mean, this is also similar to that. My super cliched version of that is yoga. Mm-hmm. I started doing yoga 10 years ago. And when I first started doing it, I could barely like get my hands down. Like if I, if I bent over, I could like sort of touch the bottoms of my knees. Right. And I was terrible at it. And now I'm not a great yoga person, but it like, I, I can do it. Yeah. And it's so nice to be like, Oh, if you apply time, effort and will, you can change things. Yes. And you're not concerned about the results. You're just concerned about showing up every day and being a part of the process Mm -hmm. and knowing that it is leading somewhere. And it, uh, 
that, that I think that being able to accept incremental change sets the foundation for more lasting change because you cannot it is just it is impossible I'm, I'm not going to say it's impossible but it is unlikely that on a Monday you go I'm going to change my entire everything and Tuesday mm-hmm. I quit this I quit that I quit this and now I'm perfectly happy you know like it just doesn't you just have to accept that it's a process and be edified by the fact that you know you're making healthier choices for yourself and selfless choices for the world and uh, and that and that that sets you that sets you on the path yeah but it's very hard to see when you're in it, as I'm sure you remember. And, and yeah, like it's um, that word inured, mm-hmm. I-N-U-R-E-D, where yeah. you're sort of like desensitized through exposure. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's hard with ourselves. Like like looking back at my life and like when you're in the middle of something and you're like your quotidian circumstances are terrible, but they're your quotidian circumstances, so they're familiar. Right. What can help is to look and this is both sad but helpful, like how many public figures are almost like doing the work for us. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a friend of mine is making a documentary about me, which is also, I feel like a complete narcissist. Like I'm here talking about my second memoir and a documentary being made about me. Like, <laughs> That's okay. But there's this one scene where we're having, there's an interview where I'm talking about some of these things and the director cuts away to some public figures for whom their pursuit of fame didn't quite work out too well. Like he cuts to Ernest Hemingway, he mm-hmm. cuts to Kurt Cobain, he cuts to DJ AM, he cuts to Michael Jackson, he cuts to Chris Cornell. He cuts, like it's just on and on all these people who are like smart, sensitive, creative people who probably assumed that success and material well-being were going to fix things. And we sort of can look at them and be like, oh, it didn't work for them, but even like we live in LA, like how many people do we experience or come into contact with who still think that like, you know, it's going to work out if they just have the perfect like material portfolio. Yeah. Oh, those people didn't know how to do it right. But when I do yeah. it, it'll be perfect. Like, it's eh, like, well. like Homer Simpson when he and Abe Simpson start, I forget what they, they, oh, they start like an aphrodisiac company. And oh, is it, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what they're doing? They're, they're like on the road selling medicine? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. And um, um, Homer, at one point when they're, put, put it, they're bottling this aphrodisiac, um, Homer says, you know, a lot of people have failed with their get-rich-quick schemes, but I'm sure I'm going to succeed and get rich and quick. <laughs> you know, it's like we all – everyone thinks that they're the exception. Like they're the one – who, it's kind of like health. Like people always say like, oh, well, my, I knew this lady who lived to be 110 who smoked cigars and ate nothing but bacon. I was like, you're really going to base the norm yeah, on the exception? on the outlier. You know? Yeah, well, that's the thing is that we all want to be outliers. And so we, you know, we try to create this confirmation bias loop on outlier yeah. information, which no, stati- no reasonable statistician would do. <laughs> I mean, they just... I think I'm pretty sure they tend to discard the outliers. They're <laughs> like, well, that was a an anomaly. That was an anomaly. Like, here is the and it's if a, you if you consider yourself as like, I'm probably in the middle of the pack. But no one wants to think of themselves as being in the middle of the pack. It's the bell curve, right? You know, I mean, you think of the bell curve of like human like consequences, and right. most of us are right in the middle. Like, if we eat garbage food, we'll get fat and sick. <laughs> you know, if we are 
cruel and terrible to the people around us, they will eventually get tired of us and will be sad and lonely. Right. You know, it's like, sure, there are those people on the, like, that one person on the extreme who, like, eats bacon every day, smokes cigarettes, and lives to be 110 years old. But as you said, like, you really, like, when you're looking at 99.999% of the rest of that curve, you know, the statistical sample, and that that model doesn't apply to them, why yeah. in the world would you give it any credence? You're essentially trying to live your life b- by the Guinness Book. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, these are all of the ex- the exceptional examples, and you should look at the data. But it's that people want to look at data that essentially just um, uh, supports this kind of... The magical thinking. The magical, yeah. the magical thinking, because mm-hmm. that's what we... That's what we need to believe in that moment, but I guess it's just sort of resetting, you know, resetting those parameters mm-hmm. and figuring out, you know, hey, maybe I can just try to figure out how to be happy now. But if you hadn't been through all of that, then you maybe let me let me let me rephrase it. Let me phrase it this way: Do you think you ex- have experienced more joy since then? Than you would have if you had just lived a very kind of, you know, even keeled, kind of flatlined life. Like, are you appreciative of the experience you have because now your your joys and successes are so much more appreciated? Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. Like, bottoming out in every sense of the word, you know, like, as a human being, as an alcoholic, as a drug addict, as a man, as a, you know, musician. Like, I, every, every way in which you can bottom out, I sort of bottomed out. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm most grateful for. And I know someone listening might think like, oh yeah, you don't, A, you don't mean that, or B, you're utterly delusional. <laughs> but like, I truly, like, because, like, for example, there's always that, that question, I'm sure you've been asked lots of times, like, oh, if you could change anything in your life, what would you change in your past? Yeah. And it's like, nothing. Even the most degrading, terrible stuff. Because like, for me, if I'm happy with the perspective that I have now, not even the life I have, but just simply the worldview and the perspective I have, every experience I've had has contributed to that. Right. So how can I resent anything if I'm grateful for the perspective that I have? Right. And it's not like it's not like you're 80 and then went, ah, oh, I just figured it out. God damn it. You know, it's like you yeah. still got tons of time, you know, in theory. You got tons of time. And if not, again, like it's it's I mean enters a sort of tangential realm of discussion is like is death like our relationship to death is so weird because it's literally it's the only absolute given in our lives you know like there's no guarantee i'll be alive in one second from now right you know but yet i go through my life i'll go through our lives assuming like somehow we're going to be the ones to cheat death right you know right like like I was actually talking to an ex-girlfriend of mine and the question was, if you could, how would you like to die? Right. And my, well, I have two answers. Okay. One sort of inspired by um, Fahrenheit 450. No, no. Um, what's the book? Oh, I can't remember it. Which one? I don't know. Oh, man. Stupid alcohol. Drug <laughs> brain can't remember. Um, why am I thinking of Fahrenheit? Because it's not Ray Bradbury. It's Kurt Vonnegut, Slaughterhouse-Five. Got it. That's why I got confused because it's – they both have a five in them. Sure. They're, yeah, they're, there you go. Yeah. yeah, there's a five in the middle. So of the in, in Slaughterhouse-Five, like, you know, he has these two multiple timelines. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, one perfect way to die would be like in a huge glass ball filled with breathable liquid. 
at the at the edge of the universe as our universe transforms into something else. Like, sure. So that's answer that's one, one way. I'd like to die. Like, yeah. As the universe starts folding in back on itself. Right. Like, and I'm the first thing to be destroyed. Like in let's say a billion years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so. that's one way to go. The other is somehow in service of something. Mm-hmm. Like the way I don't want to die is like comfortable and in my sleep when I'm 85 years old. Like I'd rather die tomorrow saving something, mm-hmm. helping something, than die comfortably 30 or 40 years from now. That is – I've never heard anyone say that before and I'd never really – and I'd always had kind of opted for the comfortably in my sleep thing. It's I still might. It's, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that answer. But like if God came down and said, you got a choice – Die at 90 in your bed, surrounded by dogs that you love and some people that you like, comfortably, like painlessly, or tomorrow changing the world and trying to save people without even a moment's hesitation, tomorrow in service of something. Oh, wow. But then again, I could also be full of garbage because I've never been in that situation. (laughs) You know, like maybe like, like it's just like tough talk that sounds really good yeah. on your podcast. And the truth is like, if presented with that opportunity, I might be like, uh, uh can 90 I, sounds pretty good. How many dogs yeah. is it? It's can a I, lot of dogs, right? Yeah. Is, is it in Vermont? Is there a fire? Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's good to know that about yourself too, because, you know, it's, I hear you. I hear you throw the word narcissist around several times, but I don't know if a and and, and narcissism is a is a term that we use very loosely in our culture, but but really clinical NPD is really fucked up. Yeah. Like and 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 people with NPD don't recognize. Like they wouldn't have the presence of mind. To, I think. Because I think everyone has a little bit of everything, you know, like it, it, there, there is a sliding scale. But to be on the malignant end of the narcissism yeah. spectrum, I don't know if someone would actually say like, I'm a narcissist. I just don't know. I Unless don't know. they went and like took a class at their learning annex on like how to pretend you're not a malignant <laughs> narcissist. Shit, I thought of yeah. that. <laughs> I love the idea of you just showing up at the learning annex, yeah. taking notes. How can I appear to not be a narcissist? Yeah. Identify as an, okay, all right, done. Um it's interesting. The DSM. What are they up to now? DSM five. DSM five point something. Oh, oh. I think it's. I think it's five. Okay. Yeah. I really because I love diagnosing people, mm-hmm. but I wish that there was a new because like there's so much overlap. You know, like we say, like someone has like borderline personality disorder, or they're on this spectrum, or NPD. But I feel like a lot of it is very circumstantial and conditional. Sure. Um, you know, like people start decompensating or disassociating based on like external and internal circumstances. I wish there was some way of like establishing that because I simply pres- – I just would love to be able to diagnose people better. Sure. Because you know? <laughs> like, it's so frustrating. No. Like with our president, like is he a narcissist? Is he a sociopath? Like it's kind of like Reese's peanut butter cups. It's like, oh, they be both. There's a little bit of, oh, you got your narcissism in my borderline. You got your borderline in my narcissism. Yeah. We're a sociopath. You know, like I, I, I don't know. I do, but I do think at that end of the spectrum, it, there is a lot of crossover. And I think you, with, with the exception of, um, uh, I think, uh, disassociative identity 
disorder is a very specific thing that I know can, well, that even that can happen in a lot of different, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, you're right, but at least you know that it all comes from that section. And I guess it's really just more important for the experts to figure out the taxonomy, yeah. <laughs> like the, the ins and outs. I just really wish I had like the easiest way to diagnose people because if you could, what would you do with that information? Feel smug. <laughs> 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 mm, I know what you have. <laughs> yeah. I don't have anything. That's what someone with that would say. Yeah. <laughs> well, we see, I mean, there is so much of it, uh, particularly, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure our business draws that, you know, our respective businesses mm-hmm. do draw that. And I'm sure kind of inflame some of those tendencies. Um, but, I mean, I, my guess is that. You know, obviously, with, with with social media, that it's just it's just inflaming that in everyone because everyone has a touch of you know the the draw of attention at all costs and and being noticed and, and significance at any cost, you know, through, through good or bad means, and um, you know, it just it just kind of seems like it's a it's just a part of our cultural thread at the moment. It's funny. I for a while, my defense of social media, which I still believe is that like I, I mainly try to use it for activist awareness sure um but like a few months ago i was talking to someone i said like i was like oh i love social media because like it enables me to like spread messages that i care about and draw attention to organizations and causes that i care about and that's still true but then instagram recently modified their algorithm and i haven't been getting as many likes as i was accustomed to <laughs> and you feel it and all of a sudden i was like huh that doesn't make me feel good i was like maybe my tough talk about just you know being a concerned activist i was like well, actually like i just posted a picture of me eating breakfast and it only got 6000 likes right. whereas i i thought it was going to get 10000 i was like but and so i was like okay maybe i'm not quite as like benignly evolved as i'd been well if you if 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 you know that you have an addict's brain mm-hmm. and you look at social media if you could if you could squeeze social media into a powder it is a psychological drug and you either i think a, i i think a lot of people will either get to the point where they just realize there's just no way to do it in moderation. And I think people will just start quitting social... I think some people will start quitting social media because it's exactly like what you said. I mean, I, I feel that too, even as much as I know, like, it's bullshit. It's all bullshit. It doesn't matter. But you still are like, oh, no. Am I not? What is this? Oh, I don't feel as valid. And then when you... If that really, really affects you more than a couple of seconds, then you should probably think about maybe not being involved in it. Yeah, if, go, go yeah, outside. Yeah, because it's yeah. the same thing as like... If you know that your body can't handle taking a drink or doing a drug one time or not being addicted to any number of things, you know, I would say, like, at a certain point, it's like, well, then maybe I shouldn't jump in that pool, you yeah. know? Because it, 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 we're not – I think very few people are actually really above it. It's very – it can be very challenging to do it in moderation. I try to have my social media discipline or my phone discipline. So I have – a room in my house and that's ideally where the phone lives yeah so I have this thing where like for me to use my phone and to check social media i have to go to that room and for a while i was so good i was only looking at it five times a day mm-hmm. and i had a little stack of five coins and every time i looked at social media i had to take a coin from one <laughs> pile and put it in another pile but then of course like 
because I do enjoy watching television. Mm-hmm. So I'd be watching television. The show would be kind of boring. I was like, wow, I really miss like looking at my phone while I'm watching TV. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like cocaine and alcohol. Like once I discovered cocaine, I was like, well, I love drinking, but boy, I really love drinking with cocaine. Right. You know, like I love watching this season of True Detective, but when it gets slow, it's really nice to like look at Instagram. Yeah, we can't. It's, you know, I think the big challenge is figuring out and maybe this is the lifelong pursuit. Maybe it's just addicts. I don't know. But I think the lifelong pursuit can be how successful can you be at sitting alone with yourself mm-hmm. with no distractions? Um, you know, TM is very helpful for that. But, you know, you would do that in 20-minute increments when you do it. So can you sit for an hour quietly with yourself? I mean, you ever go, you ever, like, go look at old historic houses from, like, the 1700s and all the rooms are small and there's, like, pretty much no closet space because no one really owned anything? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's just, like, there was, well, the, like, the recreation area was really, like, one rocking chair and an oil lamp. And you're like, wow. And some people just fucking sat like this is what they did. They just sat here, you know, and you get anxious because of how few distractions there were. It's uh, yeah, it's worth. I sometimes have to remember like, oh, those people also had like they had real jobs and they had to work to literally like they had to make sure there was food that they were growing to survive. And so I think like if you're a farmer working 15 hours a day, seven days a week your best source of entertainment is sitting. Right. Like just sitting and being exhausted and thinking like, wow, best case scenario, I've got another five years left. (laughs) Right. And I'm only 29. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe they, you know, like who knows, like they had like one book of like, I don't know, like 19th century poems. And I would just read that same book over and over again. Right. I'm amazed that there weren't more STDs back then. Because you would think that like a huge form of recreation pre-electricity would have just been having con- like sex all the time. Yeah, but but people weren't really traveling outside of their own communities a lot. So there was not a lot of, there were probably okay. not a lot of foreign viruses and um, uh, bacteria coming in That's because true. they were all essentially immune to their own stuff. You know, it's like you... You, you're in one place and then you go drink water in another place and your body's not a, adapted to the back, to the local bacteria. It's, yeah. And so it probably was – I mean I'm sure it's rampant. It's been rampant in the last hundred years because of travel. <laughs> yeah. And also, um, yeah, pre-antibiotics, people had much stronger immune systems. Like because you're drinking – like now we drink like clean water, which is great. We have right. clean food, which is great. But back then like – Everything involved bacteria. So, and of course, you know, the dawn of the industrial age, you know, of course the STDs were a problem. But then, mm-hmm. you know, people were, um, especially in the in Victorian culture, there was very much like like prostitution was a, a, a not super public but very accepted part of the culture. And so there was just a lot of fluid sharing and Mm -hmm. so there were you know people did get gonorrhea and people did get you know horrible stds but i think we're talking about like if you just live in a community of like 200 people i guess yeah that's why people had sex with farm animals and stuff (laughs) because like i mean i mean if we're really just breaking it down no of course not (laughs) like you know like that, like that middle of the 18th century, no books, no electricity, you're cold, yeah, yeah. you're lonely. You're cold. Not, you know the, again, I think it's disgusting, just to be very of clear. Of course, of course. But 
they didn't have the presence of mind to whittle a fleshlight or a dildo of sorts, you know, depending on what your preferences are. And uh, I'm, I'm, I sometimes have because we we do as we all know, like things like seems are sort things are sort of moving towards some version of an apocalypse, you know. <laughs> and I, I have to admit, I'm to your point, like I'm scared, like uh oh. What would I do without electricity? Right. What would I do without heat? What would I like? Like, I don't. I don't know how to. I don't know how to live beyond. Like, if everything shut down tomorrow, the water and the food in my house would last me a month at best. Beyond that, I'm going to try to make you feel better about that. I'm going to try to make you feel better about that very thing, because the one thing that you should have faith in is your innate adaptability as a human animal. You're absolutely... I mean, that is the only thing... Well, it's like, yeah, if you look at humans, it's like adaptability, fear, and viciousness or the three... And community, you could say. Like, those four things are the reason why as, like, bald, maladapted apes on the Serengeti 200,000 years ago, like, we should have died off. Right. Like, every other creature is better adapted to this environment than we are. They either they fly, they run fast, they're... Tons of them, yeah. You know, it's like kill off a hundred, and there's still ten thousand left. Right. Whereas with us, like, what was it? At some point, there was a drought a few hundred thousand years ago, and um, evolutionary records indicate that there were only twenty people, twenty humans left on. Oh, the that Earth. bottleneck where, yeah. And there was like what's like mitochondrial Eve, mm-hmm. like this one woman, and all humans are descended from this one woman because there were so few people left on the planet. And somehow we clawed our way back in. And the ones who lived were the ones who knew how to, like, stick together and be afraid of everything <laughs> and be <laughs> the most that. vicious creatures on the planet. But you, I'm sure you can remember when you were probably at the uh, – when your consumption was at its peak – if someone had said to you, can you imagine living a life without drugs or alcohol to get you through the day, you would have been like, I can't even I can't even imagine that because I remember that. I remember thinking I would never be able to fly on a plane if I wasn't drunk because I was so terrified. Mm-hmm. And then I just fucking figured it out. Like you should yeah. never underestimate. You can't see your adaptability. It's not tangible. It's just a thing. And so you if if you have faith in anything you should have faith in that you will adapt to anything i mean how long have you been vegan 31 years before you were vegan did you think you could adapt to a vegan lifestyle oh, no. so no, and, no, you're but you right. did you know and you just you figure out what you need to you figure out what's important you would figure it out if you didn't i mean it wouldn't be fun but you would figure out if you didn't have electricity you would just figure it out you know like that's just what we do makes me think it would be a nice idea for an, like you know the road the Cormac McCarthy right. book and movie mm-hmm. um what if there was like a nice version of that where like <laughs> the, the apocalypse the apocalypse happens everything falls apart but the end result is like people are happier like people are like oh actually like f- i don't miss my phone because now i have friends now i have community sure. now i have i'm outdoors like searching for food and like i'm healthier and more active so. well you had a personal apocalypse you know, yeah. it was like, so you did go through a version of that and any kind of event that it feels apoc- that feels apocalyptic to people and if, and if they survive it and they can survive it constructively and learn from it. And it's like, you know, I think most people would be thankful for their apocalypse, their personal apocalypses, you know, but again, that's just about adaptability and it's about choices and it's about, you know, what can you control, which is the choices you make and how you yeah. respond to things. And it's funny because that's 
what we sort of started talking about was like the people you've had on your show. Yeah. And what you've learned from them. Yeah. And it, and it really does seem to be that like, well, like a love for what they do, but also that adaptability. Right. Because, you know, I think of like Bill Clinton when he was defeated as governor of Arkansas, you know, that's, that's bad. You know, like when you're what, 30 something years old and you're unemployed and you've just been like soundly defeated as the governor of Arkansas. But if that hadn't happened, he wouldn't have gone on to like reinvent himself and become president. Right. Or Al Gore in 2000. Right. You know, like you've just won the popular vote by, by a million, but you lost the election. That's a pretty low bottom. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward to he wins the Academy Award for Inconvenient Truth. He wins the Nobel Prize. He's on the board of Pixar and Apple. I asked you know, him about that and I couldn't get a straight – I couldn't get an answer out of him. I, mean, I asked him about that moment of like you, lo- you lose this thing that you want. It's the day after. What's going on in your head? How do you pick yourself up and sort of reinvent or go down this other path to do all these other things? And he's like hey, – no, but all he said was, oh, geez, bringing up some bad memories. And I'm like, OK, well, you don't have to say. But I, but I am – but I've all, I'm always interested to hear about how – the same event can happen to two different people, and it, they the choices that they make in the face of that profoundly affect what the ultimate outcome is. And how does that happen? And what's the difference? And how do people yeah. overcome those things? Because shitty things are going to happen in life. You said death is guaranteed, and so is that good and bad things will always you know will, will happen. But that relationship to adversity and failure, I mean, there's so many people. I like, think of Robert Downey Jr. Right. You know, who actually was my best friend in third grade. Really? I didn't know that. Weird little bit of trivia. Yeah, in Darien, Connecticut. I had no idea. Yep. Yeah. I, I haven't seen him. No, I saw him once in New York in like the 90s when he was bottoming out. Yeah. Like I was at a nightclub and he was like on the stairs, like passed out. And I think he'd thrown up on himself. Like it was pretty bad. Yeah. But I haven't seen him since then. I mean, it. you know, he's a, an amazing example of... I mean, it's the fact that he ended up playing Iron Man is so brilliant because it was a lifetime ago now. Like the like when he was, you know, getting fucked up and just appearing in in someone's house, you know, and it just seemed like there is literally no way this guy's ever going to work again. No one can insure him. He's not reliable. And then he fucking gets it together and is now a fucking icon. He was always an amazing actor. But now he's an like he's literally he's like a family he's an icon for families yeah and you know and, and goodness and I'm assuming that if you had talked to him when he was like being admitted to prison yeah like he's a bottomed out crack and crystal meth addict going to prison he would probably say like this is a pretty low moment but if that hadn't happened everything good that's happened since never would have happened like that's he, right. he could have just sort of stumbled along you know and I don't want to name names but end up as some sort of like bc list actor who who you vaguely remember right you know yeah can you imagine like he's going into prison at that time or where wherever whatever it was and saying to his agent like do you think it's possible that i'll be one of the highest paid most respected performers and, and they'd go probably not yeah, yeah. probably like not. let me look at my magic eight ball yeah exactly and, <laughs> and, and it exploded and, in my yeah. hand and there's blue liquid everywhere so i'm gonna take that as a bad sign yeah they're like well there is absolutely no precedent for an actor bottoming out on crack and crystal meth and going to prison and then coming back and having even some small semblance of a career. Well, but that's why anyone who's going through everything like, like you were should remember that adversity, it also starts with an A, gives you armor 
for the next thing, mm-hmm. you know? And not just that, but but also the ability to share information. I mean, you know, you say it's narcissistic that they're making a documentary and you wrote another book, and I say, well, that's very helpful to people who are going through whatever sort of personal apocalypse they're going through and go, oh my God, I'm not alone, or this guy was able to do this, and he went through, and I felt that way too, and so... You know, the other side of it is that uh, the other A word is that it's altruistic to, you know, to share to share these stories because this is how we learn and spread information. Well, that's that's the goal. I mean, I'm sure there's narcissism in there as well. But the goal is to sort of say, like, OK, let me be as honest as possible. Right. Um, show you what I pursued, show you where I ended up, what the consequences were to hopefully like – Maybe let people know that, yeah, like what they're going through, they, they'll be able to survive it. Mm-hmm. And maybe the assumptions they're making about what will bring them happiness should be reassessed. Right. See, it's just too bad that you couldn't have been friends with Tesla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, buddy. Yeah, things are okay. Come on. You're going to be – there's going to be these devices that take people around, that drive people around, and it's going to be named after you. You're not going to get any money from it, but – You'll have a great statue by Niagara Falls. Your face is covered in maggots. No, you're you're kind of bottoming out right now. There's no maggots. You're fine. Mm -hmm. Everything's fine. Virtual maggots. (laughs) That's a great name for a production company. (laughs) I want to talk about Little Pine for a second. Okay. Because I drive by it all the time on Rowena. Uh, wait, is that it's Rowena still at that point? Yeah, yep. Because uh, it turns into Glendale Boulevard and splits off into Fletcher. But uh, it's I, so. My wife, unfortunately, this is going to sound crazy, but it's absolutely true. My wife has a sensitivity to vegetables in that they give her kidney stones. Wow. So, she, so she's had probably. 20 kidney stones in her life and they figured out like oh your body doesn't process a certain thing so you can't eat too many vegetables Mm -hmm. so uh so we have actually i have not been to little pine but i do not have the sensitivity and i want to come to your restaurant because i've started eating a partially vegetarian diet Mm -hmm. um and mainly for cholesterol if i'm being honest it's mainly for cholesterol Mm -hmm. but i realized like well you can either be all of this or it's okay to be some of this too because at least it's starting down a path. Can you sort of talk a little bit about it and what it's meant to you and you know just your health benefits and mind benefits and all that stuff? Yeah. Well, I mean I, be- so I became a vegan 31 years ago and I had grown up like everyone I assume who's listening like just eating garbage. You know, like I loved pepperoni pizzas and McDonald's and like – Frosted flakes with extra sugar on them. Right. I loved junk food. And then I became a vegan because I loved animals. And I just – I couldn't be involved in anything that caused or contributed to animal suffering. Mm-hmm. So – and then time passed and I found out about the role of animal agriculture in climate change. Um, World Watch just estimated that 45 percent of climate change is a result of animal agriculture. I talked about it with Al Gore and he said that's the true inconvenient truth. He said it's easy to get people to like switch their light bulbs and drive a Prius. He said getting them to give up McDonald's is a lot more challenging. Right. Um, and then health, you know, the role of animal agriculture and diabetes, cancer, heart disease, et cetera. Um, so – but to your you, – you, you were sort of talking a little bit about um, flexitarianism. Mm-hmm. 
And ah, I didn't know it had a name. It, well, there's reducitarianism, mm -hmm. there's flexitarianism, and it does. And it's interesting because a lot of people in the vegan world do have this sort of binary approach. Like sure. you're either vegan or you're not. Right. And I'm vegan, but I also think it's like no one is born like listening to the best records, mm -hmm. um, being vegan, whatever. Like you evolve into it. And like, like in the world of punk rock, like I remember back when I was in hardcore bands in the early 80s, like if someone was listening to the police – some of my friends who were in hardcore bands would be like, oh, those sellouts. And I was like, just a reminder, a year ago, you were listening to the police. You know, like, <laughs> like the same way. <laughs> like, what? No, that was different. <laughs> so some vegans will like be super judgmental of flexitarians, reducitarians. And I have to remind them, like, remember two years ago, you were at McDonald's. Well, that's the, that's the thing that I think can scare people who are on the cusp of it away is that – I think with extremism in any, you mm -hmm. know, across any anything, whether it's entertainment extremism, religious extremism, political extremism, you know, extre extremist uh, 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 vegan mentality. But I think people can get scared away because a handful of, and again, it's by a long shot, it's not all, but yeah. just a, but it's just the same as everything else. It's a handful of extremists like you fucking piece of shit. You're gonna eat that. You can't fuck you. And then people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. And I yeah. think it, it, you know, I think what a lot of the extremists don't understand is like. You're building a barrier in between. Like those people might have otherwise been curious or come over to the side, but now they just feel like, oh, I don't, I can't yeah. be like that, or I'm scared. You're absolutely right. And I, as the old man of veganism, I try to remind <laughs> the new vegans of that. I'm like, I'm like, and I sort of say to them, like, how would you have felt when you were at McDonald's, interested in veganism, and if I had come up to you and yelled at you that you were a piece of shit, right. and terrible, like that might not have encouraged you to consider <laughs> veganism. Right, right. Um, it reminds me of there's that uh, the Voltaire quote that Obama paraphrased in his first State of the Union, which is "Don't let the pursuit of the perfect be the enemy of the good." Right. Oh you know? God, that's such a great quote. I can't take credit for oh, it. Just digesting Voltaire that for a second. I'm yeah. just digesting that for a second because we all again is. Culturally, there's so much binary. There's so much binaryism right now, and it's like you're either this or you're that, a hundred percent, a hundred and ten percent. And you're right that that pursuit of binary thinking or extremism really does. Uh, you're running so fast towards that that you're not stopping to seek the truth, be, try to be reasonable, try to communicate, try to have conversations, try to learn or understand. I mean, as we saw. In the last election cycle, or no, like in 2016, like I was an old friend of Hillary's. So I was like, yeah, Hillary, I'm a Hillary supporter. And friends of mine who are Bernie supporters were like, fuck you, Hillary's the devil. I was like, no, she's not. No, she's a smart, progressive woman. And I was like, and if Bernie gets the nomination, I will happily support him. And they were like, I will never support Hillary. I was like, so you're going to help Trump be president. So right. like, and I would pull, like even Susan Sarandon, I'd be like, so you really think Trump will be a better president than Hillary Clinton? <laughs> and these binary thinking people would be like, yes, then that's what we deserve. Like better Trump than Hillary. And I was like, that's... So insane, I can't even begin to process it. You but know? you can't – I mean the only thing that you can do when faced with extremism is give it a shot, try to talk. I think most people do want to be heard. Mm -hmm. See if you can you know, have the conversation. It's just unfortunately, especially with social media, we don't have the time or energy in our lives to have a thousand – 
very thought out conversations a day because at a certain point you got to live your life. Yeah. So you really do have to pick and choose like which ones are significant and what what you can do and what you can achieve. But but it, you know. But again, it just at what point do you stop? At what point do you stop trying to uh, digitally do things and then just do them in your own life, in your own community, in your own world, in, mm-hmm. the, in, the, re- in the, the real world. And, it, and it's that really seductive power of certainty. Yes. You know, like, and I know because, like, there was a time when I was, like, a militant evangelical punk rocker. Mm-hmm. And I was a militant atheist. Then I was a militant dance music guy. And I was yeah. a militant Christian. I was a militant anti-vegan, then a militant vegan. And at yeah. some point I sort of said... Where does this militancy come from? Like, no matter what I did, I was militant. That's like the, that's part of the addictive brain. And it's also like, it comes from a place of like fear, Mm -hmm. whether it's like from our own upbringings or just heredity of saying like certainty, like we look at the existential void in which we live. And if the world is scary and unknowable, like certainty and groups of people who have that certainty is so seductive. We need it because we... We want to be able to lock into a free a prefab belief system at our core because that's very safe because mm-hmm. then we don't have to question anything, you know, because when you have to question stuff, it may make you have to rethink some of the things that you are sure are true that's maybe not true, and that's really hard to, that's really hard to do because that would mean that you are constantly evolving. And at a certain point, you just want to lock in and be like, no, this is it. Yeah. I just can't. I don't want to anymore. It hurts too much. I don't want to question, you know, like but the, you have to. It's like the platonic cave. Yes. You know, like you can all stay in the platonic cave, look, you know, like fighting shadows, or you can be willing to like leave the cave and also wonder like, why is that cave of certainty so seductive? Right. You know, like I had to do that, like say like, why is my militancy like where does it come from it's like oh it came from insecurity it came from fear and a desperate longing to belong to people who seemed like they had a whole bunch of answers right it's really seductive so i understand it but ultimately like no one benefits and i try like i speak at different activist conferences and i try to compassionately say to people like the criteria for your activism shouldn't be how it makes you feel it's how well are you serving the cause that you believe in? God, if people could just remember that. You know, it's like, so like if you're a vegan and you're yelling at someone eating McDonald's and you're throwing blood on a fake fur coat, like that might make you feel good. I don't know if that's necessarily representing the cause of animal rights very well. Right. You know, or the same thing, like if you believe in, you know, like that our current our current economic system promotes egregious inequality, yelling at someone who disagrees with you is not going to convince them to consider your arguments. Right. You know? Right. But, you know, it's, you have to kind of, you have to learn that. It's it's difficult just to tell people like, hey, just don't do this. Or like, people do have to learn, you know? Like yeah. when, when, when I was in the depths of my drinking, you were in the depths of your drugs. If someone said, hey, don't do this and you'll be happy, I'd be like, fuck you. You don't know anything, you know? It's like you, when you're not ready to hear it, you're you're not ready to hear it. You, yeah, you really do. Unfortunately, the sort of mad comic nature of life is that you kind of have to arrive. It's like you're not going to quit something until you're ready. No one can make you. No one can convince you. You know, it's like any any, any friend you've ever had who's been in a bad relationship. Where you're like, you know, this person is done oh, X, yeah. Y, or Z, and they're like, "Fuck you! You don't know anything. I'm different. I'm the exception." And then six months later, 
I was not different. I was not the exception. And I just yeah. couldn't hear what you were saying until I experienced I it. I could not agree more. Yeah. And I've been, I've been on both sides of that, as I'm sure you have as well, countless times. Where, like, I'm in the terrible relationship and someone's like, well, you're in a terrible relationship. You're not happy. They're not happy. Why don't you end the relationship? Like, because I can't. Well, it's not even it's it's yeah. and that's not even just a relationship to a person, but a relationship to a job or a career or a fr- or friends yeah. or family member. You know, it's like it it covers everything. And uh, and again, it's it's being able to step back and take stock and hopefully you know, I mean, I feel like the reason that we say these things so many times to people is that our hope is that they don't necessarily bottom out before they, you know, make healthier choices. Well, that and maybe <laughs> but sometimes it's necessary. And I feel bad because I've just been I don't want to take up too much of your guys. No, time. No, no, you're not. Please. But that sort of is an analogy. I was talking to some climate activists recently and not to overstate it, but that's an analogy that also applies to like us as a species. Mm-hmm. You know, like, will we wake up to the consequences of our actions before those consequences destroy us. Mm-hmm. You know, because there are a lot of people who are drug addicts and at some point they accept that they need to get sober, but a lifetime of using drugs has already destroyed them. Right. And they, they'll get sober, but they won't live. Right. Like, so us with like, with climate change, with antibiotic resistance, like, will we find, will we wake up and will we be able to sort of save ourselves? Right. And right now it's, it's like, 60 40 and the 60 percent is not on the good side are we going to die at 90 peacefully surrounded by our dogs in vermont yeah. near a fire or underwater but like because <laughs> you know like the last time and this is really grim i don't want to end on too grim of a note but like the last time the earth had this high a concentration of co2 in the atmosphere sea levels were 240 feet higher jesus christ yeah <laughs> so it's kind of like the i always think of like you grew up where uh, well, primarily in Tennessee, but I've been in L.A. for so long. Okay, so you remember the end of winter because things froze in Tennessee, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So like you'd be – it'd be like let's say middle of March and you would walk by a pond that was frozen. But you wouldn't look at that pond and say like it's going to stay frozen. You're like, oh, it's melting. Mm-hmm. You know, like – and sort of like say like, well, the climate is going to sustain that frozen pond. And you're like, no, summer's coming that's going to be water pretty soon. That's kind of like where we are with like the ice caps and Greenland and climate change. That's fun, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully um, we uh, evolve gills, although the water might be pretty toxic by the time the sea levels. Hopefully we all evolve Canadian passports. (laughs) (laughs) Those are gills. Yeah. You know, New Zealand has already started – they've now banned foreign ownership of property in New Zealand because so many people are using that as their, like, apocalypse fall fallback. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, it's probably not funny to them, but it's it's kind of – I mean, New Zealand's also tricky because, like, if the apocalypse happens quickly, how do you – How do you get there? Yeah, it's like if you're Jim Cameron and you have, like, your own private 727, maybe then, but, like, for the rest of us, like – you can't walk. Or, you know, also if you're Jim Cameron and you probably have some super high-tech fleet of submersibles. Yeah. You know, like that's the other... And they, can, so they race each other. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. can get there either via air or, or sea at the same time. But unless you're him, he is the outlier. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where Canada... I mean, like, I just wonder what's going to happen. Like, suddenly the population of Canada is 400 million. Well, let's just hope that we... Um, bottom out before the before it's over yeah i mean again 
So Cory Booker is an old friend of mine. Yeah. And when he was uh, elected to the Senate, we met up. And it's funny. The first thing he said to me, he called me up after he was elected. And the first thing he said was, what can we do to help animals? Because mm-hmm. he's a vegan. You know who else is a vegan? Adam Schiff, our representative. Oh, wow. Uh, I love Adam. Yeah, we go to um, Press Brothers on Franklin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Corey and I were talking and that, you know, the, the famous, maybe we should leave it on this because I do feel bad like taking up Do You're not. You're time. good. Don't worry about um, it. The Martin Luther King Jr. quote, like the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. There's a, you can also expand on that, like the arc of the moral universe or the arc of the universe is long, the human universe, let's say, but it also bends towards reason and right action eventually mm-hmm. you know like look at humans a hundred years ago women couldn't vote african americans mm-hmm. and white people couldn't share drinking fountains or get married you know 150 years ago african americans were property mm-hmm. children worked in factories 50 years ago people smoked on airplanes same-sex couples couldn't get married so there's amazing progress it's just so we will figure it out it's just will we figure it out in time right like eventually we'll be like oh Using fossil fuels is dumb, right? You know? And then, uh, and then, in a hundred years, they're like, "Boy, I can't believe!" Or two hundred years, why? It's just the same way we look back at, like, you know, people were eat were, were uh, used asbestos, and they did it. Oh my God, what were they thinking? You yeah, know? like, like exactly, idiots. Yeah, like fifty years from now, assuming we have, we're here, or we have ancestor or offspring. We'll look back and be like, wait, hold on. You used you, – you ate animals? I f- tor- like you used fossil fuels? Like, I, feel, you- I feel hopeful because, again, humans are very adaptable mm-hmm. and there are billions of us, you know? And if humans could survive a bottleneck and, of only, and only just be a handful, yeah. I do believe, you know – now, it may not be you and me, but humanity, I do believe, will go on and either evolve into something else or – you know, when our sun uh, becomes a singularity at some point in billions of years, then none of it's going to matter. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, I, I think in terms of survival, like you have a much better chance than I do because you have like good head of hair. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like like I really feel like I am like like the slow kind of indifferent gazelle that gets eaten first. No, you know what? Or I'm like the cockroach that just like no one bothers to kill. (laughs) They're like, there's too many of them. Yeah. But you also, because you have a plant-based diet, you know what plants to go eat. You know In L.A.? Well, isn't there... I I can't eat eucalyptus. I can't eat oak trees. I like... like, I'll come over here and I'll knock on your door post-apocalypse and be like, can I have some lemons and kumquats? Yes, of course you can have lemons and kumquats. Yeah, and you're there like... You and your whole family with like shotguns and like get away from my door that at one point might have fit cars that were too big for it. I mean, our our fruit is your fruit. Consider in the apocalypse, you can come get some mm, lemons. Things might change in, I mean, in the in the face of starvation and apocalypse. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it sounds good for me to say it this way now. Yeah. And I, I just have this vision of me like, yeah, it's ten years. The apocalypse has happened, and I'm like, remember on your podcast, you said I could have some fruit. No, I'm not English. Yeah, and you're like, no, lo siento. You're like, the world of podcasts is long gone. <laughs> there are no podcasts anymore, no. Moby. <laughs> Blam! No, I feel, I feel, I feel good about it. I really do feel hopeful about it. What are you hopeful about? Let's we can end this on a on a really lovely because this is such a. I remember the first time you came on at Meltdown at Meltdown, which no longer exists. Things end. Uh, that um, uh, I was, I was so 
gratified by the end of that conversation too. And and this was I mean, I really hope there's a lot for people to unpack here and I hope they can use all these things constructively and I hope it helps people. I hope that what you went through as a concept is in service of other people who hopefully can I hope so. get, gain gain something from the mistakes that you've made or that I've made. Um, so let's – okay. So we want to end on a hopeful note. Yeah. What are you hopeful about? Um, I'm hopeful because almost everything that we're doing as a species is moving in the right direction. That's good. You know, like we have – and also like the, the, like the information we have access to. Like because in the past – it would take us a long time to figure out our mistakes. Mm-hmm. And now we realize it really quickly, you know, thanks to – especially now that like binary – I mean, sorry, um, quantum computing is sort of bec- starting to become a reality. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to figure things out regarding our own health, regarding the health of the planet much sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just will the forces of darkness – like how hard are they going to hold on? You know, like – and I mean like the oil producers – Big pharma, et cetera, like the people who benefit from this sick and pernicious status quo, like they're not going to go easily, you know, like and how much damage will they do in the meantime? So like but I mean, just think, as we were saying before, like over the last 150 years, we keep progressing. Mm -hmm. So everything indicates like a great future for us. Like we become more self-aware, we become less violent, there's less poverty, infant mortality rates are all going down. The only two scary variables really are climate change and antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. If we figure those two out, we're in really good shape. But at least much in the same way, so if we look at our culture as kind of an addictive entity, an addictive personality, a singular addictive personality, of course, is a broad sweeping generalization, you know... the first time I realized I might have a drinking problem was not the day that I quit. <laughs> yeah. You know, it does take a little bit of time to first become aware and then begin to, and then that is a path that starts to form in your brain. And for you, maybe it was that six year period between trying to kill yourself through a sliver in a Spanish hotel and when you mm-hmm. got sober. Um, but it, the fact that we are having these converse, these cultural conversations now and that there are people who are aware of it, I think is incredibly, incredibly hopeful. It's not like we just got the news yesterday yeah. <laughs> about all this stuff. Like people are aware, you know, we know we know what some of our addictions are. And I do believe that we will, you know, pull out of it eventually. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely hope you're right. Yeah. You know, and I there's a lot to indicate that you are right because humanity has had some really dark moments over the last 300,000 years. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot to indicate that things will work out if we're willing to make smart changes. And I think part of it too is that each individual person doesn't, and you see this with either voting or whatever it is, but each individual person thinks, well, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm just an insignificant gnat. In mm-hmm. the spectrum of everything. So I'm just going to do this bad stuff anyway, either to myself or to the environment or to the community, because it doesn't matter if I'm, I'm one person. It's like, yeah, but if everyone thinks that, then you're an, you're, a, you're an unconscious swarm. And so the choices you make, the healthy, positive choices you make don't just affect you, but it does create a ripple effect that that 
that um, filters out through your community and through the environment around you. And, that, and you are significant. And I, I try to convey that to people and try to remind people also, like, the world needs inspiring heroes. You know, like, think of Gandhi. Like, Gandhi was a failed lawyer in South Africa. You know, there's a lot of, like, remarkable heroes who come from really humble beginnings. Yeah. And I feel like most people think, like, like oh, Gandhi was born Gandhi. Right. You know, it's like, no, he's like some crappy Oxford-educated lawyer. Nothing wrong with Oxford or lawyers. <laughs> but, like, like, he really was a failed lawyer in South Africa trying to, like, just make money and live within that sort of colonial system. So, like, anybody can be the next Gandhi. Anybody can be that next hero – and maybe that's the empowering message to leave people with. Like anyone listening right now can be a hero who helps save humanity, save their community, save the planet. And if you have magical thinking, and everyone has magical thinking, and you feel like maybe it's not working for you, I feel like a way to sort of start breaking down magical thinking is first be open to the fact that you might have to change your mind about something. And if you really try to, on paper, justify why you believe the things that you believe that might be hurting you, I think that could be the first step into sort of... Because it forces you to look at emotional thinking logically. Mm -hmm. And when you start doing that, if it be, if the math doesn't check out, at a certain point I think your brain will go, huh, okay, maybe I do have to change the way that I think I mean, about this. That's a whole other conversation for like the, the tyranny of neural architecture. You know, like, because <laughs> yeah, what you're talking about is like engaging the prefrontal cortex and executive thinking which is really not unfortunately like from an evolutionary perspective we're not really built to do that we can learn it but it's really hard yeah you know well maybe through self-reflection yeah accepting your faults accepting your failures accepting your personal apocalypses and growing as a result in spite of them and because of them. You know what? I'm not even going to say grow in spite of your personal apocalypses. I'm going to say grow because of them. Yeah. Then, um, then you, like you said, and this is, I think, a fun place to end this, you have everything you need in you right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, that, that was something that was very powerful when I was... And it might, sound, it might sound like a cliche, but it absolutely isn't. That's like, right. I, I, can, I think we can both vouchsafe... Why am I using like 17th century That's okay. terminology? <laughs> because we were talking about... We can both vouchsafe the veracity. You know, when, yeah. when, when we go back to living by oil lamps, and so you'll have the vernacular. Like, mm -hmm. oh, you'll have it all. And mutton chops. And mutton chops. Just and, like Uncle Herman. That's right. But it's all, uh, you know, it's all, it's all in there. So stop trying to look for it externally and, and look to see what tools you have inside you that you've already cultivated. Yeah. So uh, is, is your book out now or no, is it comes about out to come out? In May. comes out in May. Yeah. And um, you know, it's funny. One last thing. I really hate touring. Uh -huh. Like I don't really like airports. I don't like hotels. And maybe I shouldn't give this away. So before the last book tour I had to do, which I really didn't want to do, um, I went hiking every day in Griffith Park mm -hmm. in an area where I knew there were rattlesnakes, hoping I'd get bit by a rattlesnake. Jesus Christ. <laughs> because I was like, that's a really good reason to not go on a book tour oh if I get God. bit by a rattlesnake. Oh, my gosh. So I would, like, hike when I knew the rattlesnakes were active. And I, eh, best, I mean, I, I didn't get bit by a rattlesnake, which probably, all things being equal, is probably for the best. But, like, so... I probably will do the book tour unless, like, I can go get bit by a rattlesnake. I mean, what a strange – because you could survive that. Yeah. 
But you'd be down for a bit. A little bit. You have a good story, and you don't what have to do the book story. tour. Oh, of course he's not going to tour. He got bitten by a rattlesnake. And then very few people would question it, because who would go... Now, I mean, now that you've said this, people are yeah. going to know, but who would actively go pick fights with rattlesnakes? Mentally ill, middle-aged <laughs> musicians on book tours. Um, and also, I, I... You know, I'm an inbred, pasty white guy. I went to a dermatologist before the book tour because I had, like, a weird-looking freckle. Yeah. And I was all excited for him to tell me I had some sort of, like, melanoma. Because I was like, that's another good reason to not go on the book tour. And he was like, no, it's fine. It's just a freckle. And I was disappointed. And he was like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. You're the first person I know who is disappointed to not Yay, have I'm skin unique. cancer. <laughs> I'm different. And I was like, oh, damn it. Now I have to go on my stupid book tour. Well, and let's end with that, then. Let's end with this thing, then. Then... Just a little bit of advice for people to manage whatever sorts of mental illness or obsessive thinking or addictive thinking or anything that kind of get, gets in their way. Just one one tool that's been helpful for you for other people to use. Uh, there's so many. I mean, a comment like eat well, um, avoid things that are bad for you, like avoid, you know – Processed foods, avoid caffeine. I love caffeine, but like, don't go crazy with it. Mm -hmm. Don't spend too much time on social media. Exercise, like, take care of your body. Yeah. Because there's an old Buddhist quote, like, it's hard for like, like an unhappy brain to live in a happy body. And then like, do the basics, like, spend time with friends, spend time with family, and have a purpose beyond selfishness. Yeah. And like, you just do these things, and things will get better. Kind of like you with piano playing or me with my yoga practice or whatever. Is like if you apply yourself and you make the effort, things will get better. Incrementally. And yeah. then someday you'll look back and go, holy shit, I can't believe I never could have projected this outcome because I didn't have a frame of reference for it. But I just put in a little bit each day. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. and all good change is incremental. And everything good requires daily attention. Like, I try to also say that to people, like, you know what? Guess what? You have to brush your teeth every day for the rest of your <laughs> Not life. Not just one and I'm done? No. Yeah. You got to do it every day. Like you, you can't just exercise today. I mean, and you don't have to. You won't have years. teeth or your yeah. muscles will atrophy. You don't have to do anything. But like, if you want this, it's worth it. Whether it's relationships or health or spirituality, everything requires daily constant attention. Well, this was delightful to have you here. And we're such – we're fucking crazy close neighbors. Yeah. So please come back by again. Okay. I mean, I walked by this house – on average, I said five times a week. Well, now you'll get to walk up into the house. Yeah. I don't know which house is yours, so you'll have to show me. I was going to say the address, but then I realized people are listening. Yeah, that might not be a great idea. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only fourteen ninety-five. dollars Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Four, two, three, made up terrace. You've just listened to the ID10T podcast number M. Remember that from the intro? M for a thousand, M for Moby. Also, it works two ways. You have two ways for that to work, if you so desire. But uh, damn it, I am so, I was just blown away by this again. Because, you know, listen, a thousand episodes, 
uh, I just, it crept up on me. So there wasn't like a flashback episode or any sort of big, we're in Italy right now. I'm recording this and we're in Italy and it just, for some reason in my brain, the thousandth episode was still like eight weeks away. And when I saw it coming up, I'm like, oh my God, that's now? So, uh, but I'm, but I am so honored and glad that this was, uh, episode M because, um, I feel like it just had a very well-rounded topic uh, spectrum of just things that, like, types of things that we talk about. I think it's a really great example of what the podcast is uh, and what the podcast can be. And, again, I thank Moby. He's just such a great dude. Um, and uh, just the openness and the willingness to talk about. And, and also just the discussion of failure. You know, um, since we've been in Italy, one of the places that um, Lids and I went was Herculano or Herculaneum, Herculaneum, as um, non-Italian speakers might say. And uh, so Herculaneum was it it got destroyed at the same time as Pompeii by Mount Vesuvius, and it's just out, it's about thirty minutes outside Naples, twenty minutes outside Naples. And Vesuvius, which is not a huge mountain, by the way, but you can see it for pretty much everywhere in the region. So it's a fascinating story because Pompeii, basically, people were just flash fried uh, by hot ash. And so that's where you see the very, the classic, you know, like stony, smoky people frozen in fear trying to escape or holding their arms up or crouching in a corner. Um, but Herculaneum suffered a, an, an equally horrific but much different fate, which is because of where they were located, they didn't get burned by the ash. Instead, the volcano, if I'm understanding correctly, created its like a storm. So there was rain coming down and mixing with the ash and creating mud. And so Herculaneum basically um, was effectively like buried in a mud tsunami they basically it was destroyed by um by hot mud and it was a beachfront town and was completely filled in and um and then of course i don't know in the 1700s they began to excavate it and then they found this whole amazing town and it's it's utterly heartbreaking to see at the edge and now it's no longer actually on the beach because there's like a, a giant rock wall that was just all mud that uh, filled in. Um, but you can see all of these skeletons where people were either being washed out to sea or, or just rushing to sea to try to escape, but there was, there was no place to go. And it's, it's such a powerful, um, it's just such a powerful experience that if you ever get the chance, if you're if you're uh, in Italy, I really recommend that you see it because it's very moving for both of us, and also just to see the the art that was preserved. You can still see like the hand painted frescoes in some of the villas. I mean, a lot of them are you know the ceilings are all destroyed, and you know, but there are pieces and there's preserved marble flooring and and uh, and it just sort of. It's just sort of the the kind of stoic I just sort of remind you the stoic idea of memento mori, which is this idea of remembering that things you know have a time 
and things die. And I know that sounds depressing to say, but uh, I guess it just means, you know, ultimately the ultimate message, enjoy your time, enjoy your burrito. Just remember that, you know, and we talk about this a bit in the podcast. It's the one inevitability that we are sure of that we are, that, you know, we're not going to be here forever. And so, you know, appreciate that time while you have it. And also appreciate your failures for, for the learning experience that they give you. Um, one of the interesting things, which I think is an, a great metaphor that a wise woman that once married me by the name of Lydia said, we were sort of talking about the, um, the soil around volcanoes and just how it's like, it's so rich and, and, you know, the volcano is so destructive, but at the same time it creates, it creates new life. It creates new earth. And so what, you know, what life is going to be created by the volcanoes that happen in your world. Um, so I hope you are able to, extract a positive message from that. And I hope you are able to um, appreciate what Moby was saying, uh, which is that your failures are important. Um, and uh, I th- I'm pretty sure it was the same woman who married me, whose name is Lydia, who said, you know, anything that flourishes gets destroyed first and that's the seeds those are the seeds that grow afterwards so (laughs) appreciate as somebody's smiling at me um so appreciate all of it appreciate the successes as well as the failures because the failures are future successes if you can think about it the right way i know it's hard to do that in the moment but uh but if you can then you'll win <laughs> if you can figure out how to do that. But um, I just, from the bottom of my heart, want to thank you, whether or not you're new to the podcast or you've listened to some of them or if, God forbid, you've listened to all 1,000. And please let me just heap appreciation and adoration on you because I literally couldn't do this without you. I mean, I guess I could. I could just tell people I was recording conversations and then never post them, but that would be weird. Um, but, uh, you know, this podcast has meant so much to me. It's given so much to to me and allowed me to connect with so many people. The decision to do it may be the single most important, impactful um, decision of my life because of how much I've learned and and the people that I've gotten to, that I've tricked into talking to me for an hour and um i just i can't imagine i mean i can't even imagine my life without it and i just want to say thank you thank you thank you for the last thousand and uh here's to another m you guys the first m was uh nine and a half years <laughs> oh my god that's crazy nine and a half years that's this podcast is a kid now. It's in grade school. I got to take it to soccer practice and then to a Pokemon gym, I'm sure, and then to see Detective Pikachu. And then I got to buy it its first cell phone soon because all its friends have them. 
oh my god, podcast, come on, you grow up too fast. So uh, maybe we'll see you for the second M around the 18th birthday when I take it to vote. Uh, hope you're having a great whatever it is when you're listening to this day, night, afternoon, middle of the night, whatever. And I'll see you in your ears next week. Hope I wasn't too loud for my hotel room neighbor next door. That's why I've been kind of whispering because <laughs> I'm in a hotel. <laughs> Someone's going to bang on the wall. Hey, stop podcasting in there. People are trying to sleep. It's a thousand. It's one thousand. All right. Took care of that fake guy. ID 10 T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, grownups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery. Perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.